0: It's Tuesday, April 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The quarantine fatigue is real. Researchers analyzing smartphone data are finding that more Americans are venturing out despite stay-at-home orders. Work trips have remained about the same, but personal trips are starting to increase, and so are trips between counties and state lines. There's also some confusion as states announce plans to open back up, some think they can start easing up on staying at home. The US has never ordered so many to stay at home all at once, and we might be seeing the limits that citizens are willing to handle. Catherine Shaver, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how people are over quarantine. Next, some things might never be the same after going through this pandemic. One such thing that could change is grocery shopping. The current crisis has accelerated the use of personal shoppers on services like Instacart, Amazon Fresh, and Walmart Grocery. Supermarkets also operate in the psychology of shopping and spending as much time as possible in-store. And with social distancing, that could also change the way things are done. Stores could expand warehouse space to allow personal shoppers to quickly pick up product for delivery. And we could also see smaller stores with more attentive personnel. Ian Bogost, professor at Georgia Tech and contributor to The Atlantic, joins us for what supermarkets could look like after the pandemic. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in we've made real progress in this state over the course of the last number of weeks and that's why i want to just confront uh, the topic that is top of mind and those are the images we saw over the weekend the images down in orange county and ventura county on our beaches joining us now is catherine shaver reporter at the washington post thanks for joining us catherine good to be here thank you wanted to talk about quarantine fatigue it's real and researchers right now are finding that americans are starting to venture out a little bit more despite a lot of stay-at-home orders a quick story case in point on all this i live in california in los angeles and we've seen this happen across the country some other states but local officials have made these efforts to keep public beaches parks and big open spaces accessible for people for mental and physical well-being this past weekend we had a heat wave. And people went out to the beach in droves, in Orange County specifically. The whole state isn't open up like that. And we saw a bunch of pictures. The governor of California kind of was shaking his finger at people saying that's not the way to do it. But people are getting tired of staying at home. And as this thing keeps going, we don't have a lot of end dates in sight. People are getting restless. So, Catherine, tell us a little bit more about this because researchers have been tracking smartphone data to see how people are staying at home or not. They've been looking at the location
1: data from our smartphone apps. And basically on any day when a phone travels more than a mile, they assume that that phone is not staying home that day, that it made a trip. And they've been looking at this since middle of March when these stay-at-home orders began to take effect. And the data is aggregated, it's anonymous or not tracking where you and your cell phone are individually going. But as they started to look at it, the percentage of people staying home or the percentage of their phone staying home grew gradually for several weeks after mid-March. And then it kind of plateaued at about 33 to 34% of the country on average. But what really worried them was starting the week of April, April 13th they noticed that the percent started to decline. And in fact, by the end of the week, April 17th, it had dropped to 31% on average nationwide. So they're really worried about this shift in momentum. And the reason they're really worried is it's not like people started going back to work. The percentage of trips that were non-work trips pretty much stayed the same, but the number of trips that people were taking for personal reasons, going out to the store, maybe going you know, driving out to a park to take a walk, those are the trips that went up. And so that's what really concerned them but what there was this shift in momentum of people who apparently are getting restless, bored, lonely, and really starting to venture out more.
0: And you mentioned some of the numbers, you know, a dip from like 34 or 33 percent down to 31 percent. It doesn't seem like much, but these sample sizes are so big because they're looking at so much data that any movement there is kind of significant.
1: And what I found was really interesting was the public health experts I spoke with said, we know how long people are willing to maybe stay quarantined in their house. Like during H1N1, some people were quarantined. During SARS 1, some people were quarantined. But usually that's for about 14 days to 21 days max. And those are usually such targeted quarantines that local health officials can check in with folks every day and say, How are you feeling? Just a reminder, you need to stay isolated, keep going. And That's how they prevent quarantine fatigue in those situations. But nobody has any idea how on a nationwide scale, when you don't have somebody calling you every day and saying, keep going, nobody knows how long people are going to be willing to put up with cabin fever for the greater good or to protect my family. So they're very intrigued by all of this. And what do they need to do to kind of keep people going in these extraordinary circumstances?
0: It's so tough, even for health officials and local government officials, it would be almost Impossible. probably the wrong way to approach it if they said, you know what, guys, we're really going to be locked down until June. That's why we're getting these kind of, well, the order's extended until May 15th. Oh, the order's extended to May 30th. Because if you just say, hey, we're gone for two months, people are going to start rebelling initially. And then beyond that, you know, you see some other states starting to reopen things. There could be a little bit of that kind of jealousy thing, almost like why can they go out and play and we can't. So I'm sure you're going to start seeing this A lot more everywhere. And the confusion that sows also, some governors are starting to say, well, we're formulating those plans. We will start opening soon. And people are probably taking that as well. I can start easing my own restrictions now. I'm wearing my face mask. Let's just go out now. I
1: spoke with one public health expert who said it's kind of like a kid right before Christmas. You start hearing about governors talking about reopening economies and people start thinking, well, really, how bad could it be? I'll put on my face mask, I'll stay six feet away from people. But they say they're really concerned because the more people are venturing out, the more likely they are to be in places like grocery stores or drug stores. And you can do all you can to try to limit your exposure, but you are still increasing the risk of transmission.
0: Beyond that, it takes a little bit of time to gather the data and then crunch the numbers. We won't know for a couple of weeks, let's say, if these people that have started moving a little bit early might have come down with coronavirus, increased number of cases or hospitalizations or deaths. We won't know that for some time as well.
1: The medical experts I talked to said they're very curious about whether the increase in travel is going to lead to an increase in hospitalizations and deaths. They say they can't really look at whether it leads to an increase in just cases overall because testing is still so limited that that's not really a reliable indicator. But it's going to take at least several weeks to start seeing if more people end up in the hospital or more people end up dying. And then they might be able to look back and say, hey, that's when that county started to have people venture out more. That's when that state lifted restrictions and people started going
0: about one last note about how people are moving personal daily trips had increased about four percent and then trips between counties and states also increased and basically if you're out or you haven't moved for more than 10 minutes or so you're kind of still classified as staying at home but everything's basically starting to increase in some form or another
1: the way they say that we're going to start seeing this, it's not like people hit the wall and just run screaming out of their homes and <laughs> say, you know, I'm, I'm going back to life as normal. It's really more of kind of a slippery slope where we start bending the rules or maybe a few weeks ago, we would go to the grocery store on Monday and we would get everything we needed for the next eight days and we wouldn't go back out again. But maybe now by Friday, my bananas are starting to get a little brown or I'm running a little low on ice cream. And I'm also thinking, you know, I've been stuck at home for five days. I just want to get a breath of fresh air, change a scene. I'm just going to run out to Target and maybe make another run. So now I've made two trips in my week instead of one. And that's what they're really concerned about. We all just start loosening up just a little bit. And that's what they're afraid of. In aggregate could become a real problem.
0: Catherine Shaver, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Instacart told me that they've seen something like 150% increase in their order volume over the last couple of weeks. There's reports that Amazon has seen 50-fold increases in their food delivery service. Companies like Instacart have tried to hire hundreds of thousands of new shoppers.
0: Joining us now is Ian Bogost, professor at Georgia Tech and contributing writer to The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to talk about how coronavirus has changed the way we operate and a look into the future, how things might change going forward. The supermarket, for example, how this is all going to look like after a pandemic. And there's a lot of things that we're already seeing. The social distancing is a big part of it. But beyond that, online grocery shopping has increased dramatically. People are afraid they don't want to go to the supermarkets and interact with a lot of people right now. So they're going this other way but this really could change how supermarkets operate in the near future. Tell us a little bit about it, Ian.
2: Online grocery shopping has basically been a luxury up until now. About 3% of American grocery shopping takes place online through services like Walmart Grocery or or Instacart today compared to over half of book sales and uh, something like 25 to 30% of apparel sales. And one of the reasons for it is that it's expensive to do your shopping online, or at at least it was before a month ago fees. But the substitutions are wacky. You've got to be home or you've got to be able to take delivery of your perishables in some manner. So the convenience or the apparent convenience of shopping online kind of never really translated fully to supermarket shopping. And now suddenly there's this enormous explosion of interests, both for the safety of the shopper and for the safety of the food service workers, too, who are maybe at greater risk than anyone with all the people coming in and out of grocery stores.
0: So you mentioned some of the big players, Amazon Fresh, Walmart Grocery, and Instacart. What kind of growth have they seen out of this?
2: Instacart told me that they've seen something like 150% increase in their order volume over the last couple of weeks. There's reports that Amazon has seen 50-fold increases in their food delivery service. Companies like Instacart have tried to hire hundreds of thousands of new shoppers. Walmart Grocery has also indicated enormous demand. They just can't keep up with demand. And so they've even had to curtail sign up some of these services because they just can't keep up with the flood of demand. And one of the reasons for that is that the grocery store is not a warehouse. It's not a place that was built to fulfill online orders. It was for you and me to go and kind of browse and and look at things and pick the produce and feel the avocados and all of that sort of thing. So the supply chain, the logistics of picking things, of getting them to people, all of that has to transition and it might take a long time.
0: For the consumers, you mentioned it in your article, grocery stores operate on this psychology of shopping. As you mentioned, certain products, end caps, things just designed to make you buy more. This is going to change. People don't want to even spend that much time in the grocery store. They want to be in and out now. So how how will that part of it change?
2: It's so strange because on the one hand, people say like, oh, it's such a chore. To go shopping. I can't, you know, if I didn't have to do this, like I'd have more time. But actually, we actually really like going to the grocery store as well. People like to be in the, in that space. They like to pick out the things they're gonna eat. They like to have chosen the cantaloupe that they're gonna eat, and have you know, someone else pick it for them. And so we're a bit mixed in our minds about what we want and what we don't. And that's partly because we've spent the last hundred years or so in the self-service supermarket. That's an idea that had to be invented. It was Piggly Wiggly that did so in about 1916 and before that you would have gone to the green grocer or the baker or the butcher and asked them for something and they would have given it to you kind of across the counter so part of the difficulty of this transition is actually that we're in our minds mixed about it and as we see grocery sales online increase from that 3% it's not as though we're going to get to 80 or 90% the folks that i've talked to in the industry suggest that if we reach 20-25% of grocery shopping online in the next 3 to 5 years or maybe even sooner because of the pandemic that might be a realistic target which which means that people are still going to go to the grocery store and they're still going to want to. So we're, you know, this is not the end of the grocery store right. by any means, but it does mean a, a transition and for shoppers in much the same way that you kind of have thought about apparel buying differently. Like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll just order a couple pair of shoes and then I'll send back the one that doesn't fit or that I didn't like. That attitude had to evolve too. It evolved over about 20 years of online retailing and, and now we feel comfortable with it. And a similar kind of transition is going to take place for the grocery shopper.
0: So one of the interesting notes that you wrote up that a new attitude about supermarkets could change and the way we approach food shopping in general. One of the things we've kind of seen already with, let's say Trader Joe's, Whole Foods in its early heydays, this either niche market or a lot more personalization, let's say with a Trader Joe's type of thing, you know, you can yep, talk to somebody right. more approachable. We've seen all of this. So this could increase that trend. And the other trend that we've seen in the restaurant industry with these ghost kitchens, basically right. they're online order only and it's just a little kitchen, it could be anywhere and a strip mall is banging out all of these great meals. This could also be something where supermarkets or a subdivision of a supermarket can operate on so that they can do only these online orders.
2: And there's a couple of ways this might play out. that We've already seen some grocery locations close down entirely to the public in the pandemic and go just to online ordering. The problem with that is that they're still laid out for consumers. So a kind of ghost grocery, the equivalent of a ghost kitchen, would probably be organized in a different way. It would be organized for rapidness of pick-pack and then you'd get it out either to the curb or with a runner to a home or apartment for delivery. And you could do that by converting existing groceries, which are very centrally located. They're near a lot of communities. And so the idea of getting perishables quickly to consumers might be easier. We might also see those same kinds of stores expand their private space. Like there's already a lot of storage space and warehouse space behind the scenes. And those spaces could be reconfigured in a kind of more half and half style way. Now, if we do see that kind of thing happen, in my mind, it benefits the largest chains with the largest spaces, you know, the Walmart supercenters and Costco's more than the Trader Joe's. But at the same time, because there might be this sort of shift, a willingness to be open to, you know, recommendation or getting what's available, especially in the short term then there's already been a bit of a a rise in sort of specialty food services, you know, the the sort of newfangled butchers that work the way that they might have done in the 1910s or something. And people like to walk to a local venue and get something fresh from someone they know. And, you know, that might appear to be kind of a, a rarefied kind of hipster consumer attitude today, but it is possible to imagine it expanding to become more general purpose. Another thing that we might see, and you know this is really a kind of a labor management issue more than it is a consumer trend issue is that the way that these personal shoppers, as instacart calls them, are currently construed is just as gig workers, you know just as people you hire for a small fee to go and fetch your groceries for you. and if that role came more respected, people are willing to pay more for it and companies were willing to employ it in a different way, then it's more of a full-service experience where maybe you get to know someone who kind of knows what your family wants and needs, and they're able to pick the things that would make sense that are currently available in the store in a way that solves that kind of substitution problem that a lot of folks have had with online shopping.
0: And you mentioned in the article, I was kind of laughing about it, that it seems like Americans, before they were you know, no substitutions. I need what I need. And now because, hey, we can't find toilet paper here and there. We're a lot more willing to make those concessions. And I totally agree because I feel like I've gone through that myself personally.
2: It's been a really, really long time really since World War II and then the depression before it, when a consumer America couldn't get kind of exactly what they wanted all the time. So we came to expect, no, that's not my breakfast cereal, or I don't like the juice with pulp in it, actually. But now being forced to kind of contend with what's available, now you feel extremely grateful. And if that attitude sticks, which is extremely debatable, I mean, you know, it's possible that next week when the supply chain shifts a little bit and when know more people are, they realize, oh, like, I'm done with that attitude. But maybe we actually want to train ourselves to use this pandemic as an opportunity to rethink and reconsider and, and reinvent our consumer and retail habits, in which case it might be much more sustainable in terms of employment and service and that kind of thing. What we wouldn't want to do would be to you know, kind of turn these shoppers, these sort of experts back into servants that then are just responsible for providing a new kind of luxury service that replaces the old one.
0: Another interesting note that you had in your article talking about this attitude shift is What if the supermarkets transition almost into this shopping mall successor where, you know, a trusted brand will have a couple of things. It's already kind of happened, you know, with the Walmarts and what it it has the eye center and a couple of other critical needs that you might need. What if these stores kind of turn into the new shopping malls, which we've seen huge declines before this pandemic even happened? That could be another thing, too.
2: One of the things, if you, if you think about a big Walmart Supercenter or like a Wegmans, which they have in the, in the Northeast, has like, you know, a sushi bar and, you know, coffee shop and uh, Whole Foods has that sort of a food cafe where you can get lunch. And that's one of the reasons why people will go to Whole Foods. So we've seen a specialization and diversification inside of the supermarket as it's grown over the last 30 or 40 years already. And if you imagine shifting some of the space that's already in those big markets, such that it's repurposed for online shopping, for people picking and packing, for delivery or for curbside, then that would allow more space in those existing facilities, you know, which have already been built, you know, and they're in neighborhoods and near freeway exits and all that kind of thing those could be repurposed and kind of rented out or leased out, or big companies like Walmart might invest in their own services inside of them. And all of that stuff that has kind of been exiting the mall as the malls collapse, or that has heretofore been in these sort of newfangled outdoor markets where you can get a $20 chicken sandwich or something like that. There is a certain argument to be made that making that a more populist opportunity inside the supermarket retail venue might be beneficial. The problem with that is that those facilities are often sort of these real estate empires that have been built, in some cases owned and operated by the largest retail, especially Walmart, Costco as well. And so there is an increased consolidation that might take place in such a practice. Anytime we see consolidation, you know, sometimes that looks good for consumer prices, but then it can be bad for consumer choice in the long run, not to mention kind of labor and, you know, urban planning types of issues as well.
0: Ian Bogost, professor at Georgia Tech and contributing writer to The Atlantic, Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.